July 16th, and I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded a bonus episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program on growth regulator type injury occurring in soybeans. There have been widespread observations of cup soybean leaves in Minnesota. However, the number of fields with cup, wrinkled, or strapped soybean leaves in 2021 has been quite extraordinary. This was a discussion on what might be in play to cause these symptoms. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 7.30 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join the discussion and get questions answered. A note, next week, July 21st, we will not have a live webinar. Bonus episodes are released as needed. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Today's webinar was moderated by Jerry Goplin and Dave Nikolai, Crops Extension Educators with the University of Minnesota. On the webinar were guests Seth Nave, Extension Soybean Agronomist, and Devlin Sarangi, Extension Weed Scientist, both with the University of Minnesota in St. Paul, Tom Peters, Sugar Beet Agronomist and Weed Scientist with the North Dakota State University and University of Minnesota, Bruce Potter, an Extension IPM Specialist at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center. The guests and moderators facilitated a discussion on soybean injury observations, Thanks, and remember to tune in both weekly and when situations develop for a discussion on current crop situations as well as crop and pest management topics. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Dave Nikolai with the University of Minnesota Extension. We're happy that you joined us for today's session. The uh, title of today's session is really a tale of cupped soybean leaves and given the response of various uh, crop protection products. And we have a whole host of panelists that are going to be joining us here today. Uh, I'm Dave Nikolai, one of the moderators. Also with me is uh, Jared Goplin, uh, who is also an extension educator uh, with the University of Minnesota Extension. We want to welcome our guests uh, this morning. Uh, these are extension weed scientists, uh, Dr. Devlin Sarangi, who is extension weed scientist at the University of Minnesota, as well as Dr. Tom Peters, extension sugar beet weed specialist uh, from North Dakota State University and University of Minnesota. Um, as well as our integrated pest management specialist out of the Lamberton Regional Research and Outreach Center, uh, Bruce Potter. And finally, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, Extension Soybean Agronomist with the University of Minnesota. A few housekeeping things before we get started. Uh, you have an opportunity at the bottom of your screen uh, to ask questions uh, during the session. Uh, there it's in the Q&A box. So if you hover your mouse down at the bottom, um, please make sure though, however, after you type in your question, that you hit the enter key so we actually receive your question. If you have technical issues, there is a chat box at the bottom of the screen and you can enter those questions um, as well. At the conclusion of today's uh, of, uh, seminar, we will have a opportunity for a short three question survey so that we ask that if you uh, disengage from the seminar at that point in time, uh, that uh, you take a couple of minutes and help us in terms of your response for today as well as future. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to my uh, co-host, uh, Jared Goplin, uh, to help kick things off uh, for today's uh, very important and very timely uh, University of Minnesota Field Notes session. Yeah, so good morning. Uh, and before we really get going today, we're going to give a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, the point of this webinar is not to point fingers, uh, not to put blame on anyone uh, or any herbicide trait system, nothing along those lines. Really, the goal of, of today's program is is to discuss what a lot of folks have observed on a large number of acres, which is, you know, this, this symptomology that looks like uh, cup soybean leaves. 
um, you know, really across a large area in many cases. So we're going to dis discuss a lot of the different reasons, reasons and ways that that might occur, uh, things that might go into that um, as to why these soybeans might be causing these symptoms. Um, if you want, uh, you're more than welcome to share any uh, types of observations uh, in that chat or in the um, in that Q&A box, if you'd like to sort of convey some of your observations throughout the, the, the field and throughout Minnesota and the, in the upper Midwest, if you'd like to do so. Uh, really to kick off today's program, I think we're going to talk a little bit about an overview of some of the symptomology that we're talking about, just so that we're all on the same page. Uh, Dr. Tom Peters uh, from North Dakota State University has, has really done a good job taking some notes throughout the year on some of the observations he's seen in plots and in fields. So I think we'll start with Tom. Uh, if you want to give a little bit of an overview uh, of some of the symptomology that you've been observing this year. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Jared. Um, I, I do a lot of travel. Travel is important in my position. Um, I travel the, the sugar beet growing area extensively, and that also happens to be an important soybean producing area in both Minnesota and North Dakota. So one thing I want to convey, uh, an important point I want to make is trust your eyes. What are your eyes teaching you? And what I'm seeing is a malformation phenotype, okay? And it's very widespread in, in soybeans in 2021. The malformation phenotype is most prevalent in the newest trifoliate leaves. So the youngest tissue on the plant. Um, at the tips of the leaves, we normally see a cream colored, maybe a white phenotype as well, which is really interesting. I see soybeans that are actively flowering. We have not seen um, any challenges with inner node expansion. So I think in general, our soybeans are at the right size or what they should be considering the environmental conditions. But I wanna go back to this phenotype, the malformation phenotype. Um, it varies from field to field. In some cases, it's very subtle where you can see it from the road, but when you look at individual plants, it's harder to see. In other cases, it's more prevalent, especially one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. So what I, I think we should do during this meeting is talk about those phenotypes and try to better understand what might be causing some of those phenotypes and fields. Yeah, so we also have uh, Dr. Seth Nave, um, Dr. Deblin Serengi, and, and Bruce Potter on today as well. So if you have any uh, questions or concerns or want in input from them, uh, they certainly will be here throughout the, the talk today. Um, you know, we talked a little bit before the call on what's going on. And, you know, really what it comes down to with this is there's a lot of different variables that have gone into this year. So I think we'll spend a little bit of time, you know, talking about different ways we can cause these types of uh, uh, phenotypes to, to express. Obviously, we've had a lot of interesting weather this year in terms of an environmental standpoint. Uh, if we talk about, you know, the hot, very incredibly hot conditions and dry conditions that occurred earlier in June, um, you know, a lot of the drought stress in many areas really have, have exacerbated some of these drought symptomologies and, and maybe have, have driven some interesting reactions. Uh, I, as well as a lot of other folks, have had a lot of interesting conversations on herbicide uh, symptomology, whether it's soybeans, corn, you name it, just interesting things showing up just based on this, this unique environment that we've had, had, uh, had, had out there this year. So 
Um, I'm going to kind of go through a little bit of a bullet point list here on other reasons that we've put together on why we might have cupped leaves. So environmental insect and disease stressors might go into that. Uh, herbicide carryover is certainly something we've talked about, um, you know, on some of these fields that maybe you utilized some different products uh, last year than you normally would have uh, and forgot about them. Um, I know a lot of acres, at least in my neck of the woods, have gotten stinger applications going after after thistles that really got established in 2019. So some of those might have gotten forgotten about. Maybe there's some carryover issues. Uh, we get into spray tank cleanout, boom cleanout, um, causing some of these responses. Uh, of course, herbicide drift. You know that's uh, that's one of those topics that that rises to the top in some of these cases. Maybe some some questions about volatility, responses to herbicides. You know, Group 15 herbicides. A lot of Enlist uh, uh, products. Uh, all these products. A lot of times going on during these hot and dry conditions, which may have been causing some unique symptomology on their own. And a lot of these times, we, we're just not sure what's going on. You know, volatility. I'd mentioned this concept of atmospheric loading, and then finally. Um, some discussion on hormonal imbalance um, and those types of things. So Seth, I think we're going to go to you next. Uh, th that's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that can be going out, uh, going on in these soybean fields. And it's probably more than one of those things at, at a time. Uh, do you want to make some comments about what's going on in a soybean plant? You know, a lot of these symptoms might've started showing up in, you know, mid to late June, a little bit later in the North, you know, where are these soybeans at at this time and, and what's going on that, you know, in terms of physiology? Well, um, you know, just purely from a physiological standpoint, I mean, we are seeing flowers, of course, but I think it's important just in a very broad context that the soybean is still vigor vigorously growing vegetatively. So, and that's really what we wanted to do. Uh, you know, there's some the, you know, the soybean isn't really investing much in flowers and pods at this point. Uh, we really want that soybean to continue to invest in leaves. So, um, and I think Tom hit on it at very, a very important point at the very beginning of this is that a lot of the, the larger issues that we're hearing about um, tend to be this really kind of a subtle visual cue out there that we're seeing. And we're using the word phenotype, and I want people to understand that that's really a good descriptor of the genetics and the environment together and how those, how what kind of a plant those produce. Um, I know there's plant breeders and, and folks from industry that when they hear phenotype, they probably think more on the genetic side that we're implying that this is purely a genetic thing. Uh, but it's a combination of genetics and environment. So it's the right word, uh, but I don't want anybody to take it wrong. So um, I, uh, but what we're, what we're seeing is this, again, this phenotype out there uh, that tends to be in the, the more questionable one are these kind of field edge to edge uh, symptomologies that um, are pretty, you know, not benign, but there, there's not, a, there's not a heavy, um, there's not a heavy uh, growth effect on the plant. As Tom mentioned, we're not shortening internodes. You know, we may have a leaf or two that, that gets a little bit shrunken up and that's going to, you know, that could potentially in some very narrow instances uh, affect overall yield in a very, very slight way. But as long as we get continued growth and new leaves come out and are normal, we're, we're not going to see anything from it. You know, and in fact, from an academic standpoint, in some, some situations, shrinking up your canopy actually can be beneficial. And one could imagine in a drought year that you shrink up your canopy or, or reduce its overall size, you're going to reduce transpiration. There are instances where some soybean fields that um, have this kind of symptomology are actually going to do better. So 
I don't want to take that too far, but that that could definitely be uh, be a, 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 a an occurrence out there. So uh, I think just from a broad standpoint, I just wanted to mention, and this is something I thought I'd come around to at the very end, but it's really important for people to remember the most contentious issues we're talking about here today are these broad based light um, kind of phenotype that we're seeing that aren't going to have an effect on yield at all. So. Um, uh, the, the obvious drifting heavy damage along field edges where we're going to see actual yield hits, uh, twisted stems and shorter internodes, those things are going to, um, um, those are obvious and we're not really getting calls about the real obvious drift things. We're, we're getting calls about more of this broad-based lighter um, symptomology. So Seth and, and, and Tom, there was a quick uh, question here in terms of the top part of the plant, uh, drilling down a little bit, how many nodes are actually showing some of this leaf malformation? Any observations or, or comebacks on that? Yeah, I think it's, it's just near the top of the plant. So it's one node that's really showing the phenotype. Um, I don't see that phenotype deeper in the canopy. And like we mentioned, uh, this, this appears to be symptomology that's developed in the last two to three weeks or so. So it's very localized on the plant as compared to widespread on the plant. Seth? I guess we're going to see probably a range of, of those expressions. We're going to see single, multiple. Uh, the thing to remember is that that soybean plant has that apical meristem up at the very top. And it's got multiple leaves in that bud up at the very top. And so we can actually uh, do a postmortem on these and kind of get an idea how long this or how severe some of this stress was uh, by noting after the fact whether we have a single leaf or multiple leaves. Uh, but just remember, there are multiple leaves that are, that are, are emerging at the same time at different stages. They're all trans, they're all, they're all this really soft tissue lots of pubescence on them. They're starting to really transpire. They're pulling in water like crazy from the plant. And that's why we're getting an accumulation of um, uh, likely hormone hormones, uh, again, either natural or synthetic hormones in those, in those apical meristems. And they're, they're right there where all the water and the phloem is moving to. And so that's why it's hitting up that area. Uh, and the more, the heavier this, um, this damage is, the, the more of those individual leaves down into that apical, apical meristem will have, and then that'll affect us for a longer period of time. Seth, just given the dry conditions across, you know, you know, much of Minnesota, uh, much of the upper Midwest, you know, how does that drought and these added stressors kind of compile? I mean, is it just kind of get, get to be a curveball, hard to predict what's causing these things in some cases, or, you know, what influence is the drought having? Are you are you speaking specifically of this this issue that we're talking about here today? Um, you know, I, I uh, there's a multiple. I think there's a lot of from the from the purely on the plant standpoint. I think what's really happening here, and we see this a lot, is typically what we have is we have a situation where plants are growing rev relatively slowly for some reason. It's cold, and then we get a really warm spell come on. This is more typical for us in Minnesota where we've got several 50, you know, a week or two of 50 degree days, all of a sudden we turn 85 or 90. We got a big growth spurt and that's when we get some weird um, expressions in those leaves. This might be a little bit different in that we've got 
drought stricken plants that are kind of held down because of, uh, of droughty conditions. We are warm, but in some instances we got some rain uh, and some of that rain can poke up uh, this leaf expansion really quickly. And we can probably get some of those same kinds of things. Now, did the rain bring anything in with it? You know, that's another question uh, entirely. Uh, but I think that's the, the timing of this uh, stress relief. Uh, and in, even in some areas where you don't think that you really got any relief from a rain, even a, even, even a quarter inch may have actually caused these soybeans to kind of perk up a little bit and put on that new leaf and push more water out. So thanks for the, the comment in the, in the chat box here. Um, and that's kind of where we were hoping to go next. Um, really it's this, you know, drilling down in terms of how we are going to approach fields and, and distinguish symptomology, right? Um, so when we talk about this symptomology, you know, Tom, that you, you sort of describe, you know, in many cases it is, is associated with uh, growth regulator injury. Um, you know, of course there has been a lot of stuff. Uh, anybody on Twitter is, is probably frustrated at, at some of the claims that are going on out there. Um, you know, I think we should have a little bit of time here. Maybe Devlin, I'll, I'll, I'll put this to you first and then we'll go to Tom to talk about really what we do when we approach a field in terms of identifying symptomology, right? There's these claims about AMS causing issues, you know, Liberty, uh, group 15s uh, causing this, this leaf cupping with uh, sort of that symptomology that, that Tom described earlier. Um, you know, and then, and then in relationship to some of the growth regulators, Dicamba 2,4-D. So, Devlin, do you want to make some comments? You know, we've got field school coming up next week, and we've got a uh, herbicide mode of action plot, um, you know, where we really get an opportunity to see some of these different symptomologies uh, out in those plots and really get a better handle on what's causing these things. So, so Devlin, you want to uh, maybe give some pointers what we, what we do when, when we approach a field, what to look for, and then what kind of symptoms these different products might cause? Yeah, so uh, thank you, Jared. So uh, there, there are different symptomology from different herbicides. So when we are talking about like uh, dicamba versus 240 versus Liberty versus group 15, definitely they cause different symptomology on the soybean. So dicamba more you'll see cupping um, of, of the leaves. Whereas 2,4-D, it is expected the leaf will be strapped a little bit longer and then kind of cupping. Like it's more like, I would say like banana boat shape or something like that. And then when uh, you have group 15 herbicide that will uh, in the tank mix, that will cause leaf crinkling and kind of hot shepherd soybean leaf. And you can clearly see that symptoms when those fields were uh, sprayed with uh, post-emergence um, along with uh, like dual two or outlook or warrant in the tank mix. And then Liberty, uh, so Liberty only injury I have seen so far is a little bit yellowing from the leaf margin after spraying, but usually that uh, goes away. Now, uh, these are the uh, typical symptomology for uh, these herbicides. And, um, but yeah, I agree with uh, Tom and Seth that there are multiple factors um, playing around, like uh, there are uh, environmental stress. And uh, I have seen uh, like uh, soybean was stressed from moisture and uh, all these things. And uh, probably we don't have, still now we don't have proper understanding how these factors uh, behave. Like suppose 
when you spray uh, certain herbicide along with some other stress like moisture stress or heat stress, we definitely don't know like what kind of symptoms we can see. But these are kind of the key I told you to find out these herbicide group or this herbicide chemistry, what kind of symptomology it can cause. So Jared, I, I want to get specific. I want to talk about uh, more detailed uh, observations. So you've, you've mentioned growth regulators, and you can think about tank contamination. Is this related to tank contamination? And I say probably not. And the reason is, is because of how uniform it is across the field. If it was tank contamination, you'd see a pattern from load to load. And, and I'm not seeing that. Number two, particle movement. Um, when we see drift occurring in fields, we see a feathering effect. So it's heavier on the leading edge, and then it becomes less as you get across. I'm not seeing that either. I, and then finally, and you alluded to clopyrrolid, stinger. You know, there's a lot of products now that have stinger in and corn, soybean, corn, wheat, small grains, and sugar beet. But again, uh, carryover from clopyrrolid would be more positional in the field, maybe in the uh, low organic matter, more coarse textured um, places in the field or or places in the field where you might have some uh, residue like uh, tailings from sugar beet. And, and once again, we're not seeing that either. We're seeing a more general phenotype as you go from edge of the field to edge of the field. Yeah, and to add to that, Tom, I guess in terms of anytime you're going around uh, different objects with sprayers where you might have you know, higher concentrations, those are definitely the things to look for. So to kind of over give it over. I want to add one other thing. I want to add the, the acid analyd piece. So it's true. We're using more acid analids again, and that's great. That's great. Um, but here's the story. We've been using acid analid herbicides in soybeans since the 1970s. And I don't recall seeing this damage uh, years ago. So I don't want to attribute the damage that we're seeing to acid analids because I think if it was acid analids, we'd have seen it before. So to really kind of um, give an overview of what we're saying here, and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the dicamba-related um, issues and topics now, but each field is different, right? Uh, you know, a lot of us have gotten different calls on what's going on, and it's just really hard to make any overarching comments about what's happening on the wider landscape necessarily. You know, it, it does become very field specific. And, you know, what I really encourage everybody to do is, is learn, you know, think about what we can learn from this year. Um, you know, good record keeping is one of those. You know, I've had a lot of conversations on modifying sprayers so that uh, booms can be cleaned out a little bit better. You know, utilize this as, as a little bit of a learning experience on what we can do better uh, to take better records and, and really have all of the information there. That way, if issues like this do arise, we can go through and play, you know, process of elimination. Now, I realize a lot of you on the call here today have done that, right? You have good records, uh, you know what you've done, and nothing is adding up, right? So you're, you're wondering, well, what the heck's going on? I've got, you know, uh, in some cases, you know, maybe you have a, a neighbor who, or you've got a, a variety trial location. I've seen plenty of those where, 
you know, the Enlist soybeans, uh, the non-dicamba tolerant soybeans are showing the symptomology where the dicamba tolerant soybeans are not. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about why that might be. Obviously, um, it's probably related to, to, to some type of, of growth regulator, right? It's probably related to dicamba. So uh, let's maybe talk a little bit first about varietal tolerances. Um, I know there has been some work, Devlin, Seth, uh, Tom, I'm not sure if any of that's fresh in your memory about um, just different, uh, you know, varieties having different levels of tolerance to dicamba, even if they're non-DT soybeans, um, certainly could be playing into that. We've had some discussion about some of the trait integration, that transgene coming into enlist soybeans. Um, you know, do any of you guys have comments about that and some of the genetics behind this? Go ahead, Seth. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to go too far down this trail, but I just from observations this year, I think part of the confusion is that there is some variation. In, there's some obvious variation in sensitivity. And so if we're talking about dicamba, volatilization or drift, um, there is differences. And I noticed there's a, uh, somebody in the chat said all the, the non-dicamba beans were cupped, all the extend flex beans look good. And that's uh, mostly is going to be the case in, in most cases. But where we see this really lighter level cupping, uh, you know, whether it's atmospheric loading or something else, um, that's when we kind of can pick out some of these varieties tend to be more or less sensitive to that, that stress. So, um, and it's, again, it's probably dicamba, but um, there's, so there's variation out there. And I think that's part of what caused a lot of this, um, you know, questions and consternation early on is people did see some variation out there. And there is questions about whether certain varieties are going to be more sensitive. And I think that's a larger, larger package of genetics. And as, as you know, these varieties get pulled through the system and early varieties uh, tend to come with, um, you know, a more narrow germplasm with them as, as we start to release varieties. Every trade is the same way. The first lines that come out tend to be have more narrow germplasm. Uh, so it's very possible that we have uh, some increased sensitivity. It's not unexpected at all. Uh, but when we do see variation, then it, it definitely lends people to wonder what's going on out there for sure. So I think we need to have some conversation now about volatility, atmospheric loading, you know, especially in some of these cases where it's pretty obvious it's dicamba symptomology. Um, you might have side-by-side -side varieties. I know we've got a, a variety trial where it's it's pretty obvious that the uh, the, the extend soybeans are, are looking just fine. So obviously that's a pretty good clue that there's something something going on here, especially um, if you have, you know, a, a diversity of, of, of genetics out there uh, to really get a handle. And there are variability within, within those non-DT soybeans. But so Devlin, um, you want to make some comments about this whole atmospheric loading concept, what that is. And I think maybe before we do that, we'll talk a little bit about thinking back, you know, several weeks ago, what was happening when most people were spraying their soybeans? In most cases, it was very hot and very dry. Um, and any of you that are familiar with this concept of Delta T, um, really some type of a, you know, combination of, of temperature, humidity, and really getting at this concept of, of herbicide molecules or or, or water for that matter or anything evaporating just due to that, that very dry air. Now I was doing a little bit of looking and, and during that peak application timeframe in early June or mid June, you know, in some cases uh, this Delta T was very, very high. Um, for instance, if we were using a flat fan nozzle on a 95 degree day with, uh, with say uh, even 30% humidity, 
you know, over 30% of that volume is evaporating before it's hitting that target. So there was, there was a few comments in the chat and Q&A and really just thinking about, okay, even if we're not talking about growth regulars, we're not talking about dicamba, this applies to all the herbicides out there. I know there's been a lot of comments about maybe Liberty having lower performance in some of these conditions, but we need to think about where those herbicide molecules were going. And in some of these cases, they weren't ending up on the target. When we have very hot, dry air, a lot of that, that product is eva evaporating before it's hitting that target. It goes up into the atmosphere. You know, where it goes from there is going to be really determined by, you know, what the weather conditions are. Um, are we having temperature inversions that are causing, you know, some of that colder air from up above to come down uh, in the evening hours and be at a high enough concentration to show, show symptomology or cause issues in some of those, those soybeans? Really what it comes down to is non-dicamba soybeans are the canary in the coal mine if not more sensitive than, than the canary in the coal mine to dicamba. Uh, you know, one twenty thousandth uh, of a rate or even lower can cause, uh, can cause symptomology uh, in non-dicamba tolerant soybeans. So if we think back, you know, what was the application conditions like, you know, for growth regulators as well as other herbicides, and it really comes down to we were struggling to have good application conditions this year. Uh, that heat wave really made that challenging. So what's going into this whole atmospheric loading uh, concept, Deblin, and, and kind of how can we utilize that in some of our troubleshooting of what's going on in these fields? Is, is that an issue? Isn't it? You know, what's going on? So, Jared, I would be honest here. Definitely, we are using a lot of dicamba still. So, I mean, there is atmospheric load of dicamba. I, I cannot deny that because you are using dicamba on corn like as a clarity and also uh, there are some extent flex soybean where we are using it. Now, what I should tell you, like this year uh, in Wasika, we did uh, two trials where uh, we spread uh, dicamba following all of their adjuvants. Like uh, we have spread Extendimax. We used all of their uh, adjuvants like Vapor Grip Extra and uh, some DRA. And uh, and we spread a little bit off level because it was a research project and we tried to see like um, what could happen. So when we spread like the wind was like 10 miles per hour, what we saw is uh, only the dripped injury, but that's also not too far from the block where we have spread. So definitely if you follow the label, this Extendimax, new Extendimax label, if you follow everything, Yes, it is uh, causing less uh, drift as well as less volatility that we have seen in our research. But at the same time, I cannot ignore this um, volatility issue from dicamba. And, you know, a uh, few years back, uh, Dr. Andrew Knees, he summarized that one ml of dicamba uh, in, uh, even in the tank mix can cause 5% uh, soybean injury, 5% uh, soybean yield loss in one acre uh, soybean field. So that means like a little bit dicamba can cause uh, symptomology on soybean, whether it is from atmospheric load, draped or tank contamination. So definitely we cannot ignore that. And I will be happy to listen from Tom if you want to join. But what, I, uh, what I'm telling you, atmospheric load, just think about, as you told, that Delta T thing, like 
It was hot and dry condition, even if we are using TTI nozzle, but still like there, uh, some of the droplets that is um, evaporating even before touching the weed or crop leaf. And also, uh, you know, uh, as I told you, like we have sprayed dicamba on corn as well. So uh, there are chances that uh, that volatile dicamba went to the atmosphere and then wind just blow it a couple of miles and uh, sit down on a soybean field and caused some kind of uh, injury. And yeah, we cannot ignore the temperature inversion uh, situation. That's why uh, when you are applying uh, product like dicamba, it is better idea to check uh, whether this weather is prone to temperature inversion. It usually happens like uh, during the uh, like early in the morning, like close to the dawn or the dusk. And when the wind is very, very low, like really calm weather. And uh, Tom, I, I would be happy to listen from you if you have anything to add to this. I have two or three comments that I'd like to make. So first of all, let's 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 consider this mathematically. Let's say that one one hundredth of the applied volume is evaporating, and multiply that by the pounds of growth regulators that we've applied this year, and you know very quickly um, you can see that there is potentially a lot of herbicide that's in the environment that potentially. Is, is coming down or coming back at a later time. Number two, these warm conditions that we've had have created a lot of inversion conditions. I think we've had inversion conditions um, three days a week during the last three weeks. Um, so inversion conditions are important. And, and finally, um, we know, we know from years of experience that higher temperatures lead to more volatility. Um, we've learned that back in the 60s when, 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 when uh, the oxens were first used widespread in row crops. So that's information that we know. So it, it, it makes sense to me that it's possible that they're coming back maybe miles from where they were applied and, and potentially um, causing um, these, these phenotypes, especially the sensitive plants. Um, and I wanna go back again to reiterate what has been stated, um, just how sensitive soybeans are to the oxen herbicides. Jeremy, well, there's been a, yeah, there's been a number of comments in the chat or in the Q&A about um, you know, why we're not seeing symptomology um, you know, in tomatoes, grapes, some of these other sensitive crops. And really what it comes down to with dicamba is non-dicamba tolerant soybeans are, are far more sensitive than these other crops to the dicamba. Um, you know, some of the other products, you know, 240 and others, it's, it, it is different. Um, however, um, you know, the tolerance within these species is different. And then if we talk about temperature inversions um, and, the, and all of these concepts, think about where, you know, a number of, of home gardens are, uh, where some of these things are, you know, they might be protected uh, might have other vegetation, trees around them, um, you know, in cities. Um, it just becomes very, very you know, challenging to, to figure out what's going on. Um, you know, lately, the last few mornings, it has been foggy, at least in my area. 
those mornings are a good mornings to really drive around and see where some of this stuff is, is hanging up. That's in many cases, when you get that, that inversion layer where, where it's visible, uh, might give you some other clues as to why you might be seeing symptomology in some areas and not others. So, you know, unfortunately, um, there's a lot more questions than we're going to be able to get to today. We will try our best to respond to those. Um, but really, you know, a lot of the comments here are probably going to make everybody unhappy that it really is a field by field basis. You know, yes, I realize that there are, and, and we all realize that there are, um, you know, whole counties that might have, have uh, symptomology showing up. You know, those are indications it probably is something different. Um, and really thinking forward to the future, you know, pointing fingers at one another certainly is not going to get us anywhere. We really need to sort of take a breath, calm down, and, and figure out how we can maybe come to a solution here. Um, you know, if you want to be at that table, I'm sure there's plenty of opportunities to do that. Um, but we really need to be, be respectful of one another and, and really take a scientific uh, standpoint from some of this. So, Bruce, I know you've been quiet here, and you've had, uh, I think I'm going to ask you to make a few comments about trying to collect some empirical evidence, uh, you know, some empirical data here. Um, you know, what, how can we utilize this to learn for the future on, on what changes might be needed uh, and how to be better stewards of some of this technology as it, as it, it yeah, continues and, and continues to come down the pipeline? Yeah, unfortunately, we've kind of got ourselves into a box with some of this herbicide technology, um, and we've got, uh, you know, adjacent soybeans with uh, incompatible herbicide tolerances, that sort of thing. Um, is there dicamba drift? Yes. Is there herbicide carryover in some fields? Yes. Did, is there some off-label applications of dicamba? Yes. Are there some unapproved tank mixes uh, to either your your uh, dicamba application or your other herbicides? Yes, there are, uh, but that's not explaining everything. And I think we don't wanna get into a position where we're just uh, jumping at people and accusing each other of uh, your neighbors of things and uh, without, without having some actual knowledge of what is happening in individual field situations. Some of this, I think we can uh, maybe look at uh, experimentally, get some empirical data do some hypothesis testing as far as what's causing it. Uh, um, some of it we may not ever uh, be able to just because it's uh, you know a, a unique environment out there. But but really, um, there's more. There's I think there's more uh, things going on than just just a cambi injury and what that is, what's causing it. Um, that's that's what science is supposed to do, and and uh, hopefully hopefully it can. I'm not a weed scientist, so I'm disclaiming this, I do have some scruples. So uh, I'm just speaking from an outside observer and talking to people and uh, we've made a lot of observations and things I've seen myself. Bruce, you want to come clean and tell everyone you uh, bailed on your weed science class back in school? <laughs> yep, this is exactly why. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this, there's a lot of question marks here, right? We certainly don't have all the answers. We're trying to, to do our best to tell you some of the things we do know uh, there's a number of comments also here in the chat about why, you know, this, I've heard this many times, you know, why are some of the organic fields showing symptoms? Why are the, the conventional uh, soybeans not showing symptoms? Why are Roundup Ready uh, beans not showing symptoms next to some Enlist soybeans? I don't know, and I don't think anybody has a good handle on that. And that's uh, really some of the things I think Bruce is alluding to here in terms of collecting some data. At the end of the day, these are all unique genotypes, right? They're, they're varieties for a reason. It could be that there's just differences in sensitivity uh, among those. I don't think we have a good handle on that. Um, Devlin or Tom, I, I want to say there was some research that has been done looking at, at this uh, sensitivity to dicamba among non-dicamba tolerant soybeans. 
I don't remember where that was done. Um, either you have remember that, but that could be a good resource, at least as a starting point uh, going forward to at least realize some of the differences that might exist from a varietal st standpoint. Gentlemen, go ahead. I'm not aware of the research. Well, I don't know about varietal standpoint. Maybe, uh, Jared, you came across that article somewhere, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I agree with you again, like uh, pointing fingers at each other may not give the solution. I mean, I, I am following the question answers and chat box and uh, yeah, maybe like uh, if somebody uh, suspected some kind of off-target movement, maybe there is a way to report that to MDA or somewhere. So we are not going into that. And definitely, uh, you know, uh, like uh, we have like the weed management in soybean, especially it's now really complicated than before because we have so many traits out there. I mean, we can use so many herbicides like uh, Roundup, uh, Liberty, uh, 240D, um, then um, Group 27 and uh, uh, Dicamba. So we have so many traits out there and sometimes it is hard. Even sometimes this environment plays some roles and like I saw like somebody told like I have beans cupping not my tomatoes and as Jared you mentioned like it's unique to different spot maybe one part of your field is cupped another part is just fine I mean uh, it's hard to predict how it is happening maybe from some kind of drift maybe some kind of uh, volatility issue so I think, uh, yeah, definitely like uh, all the panelists and the participants, nobody has a good answer to that. But definitely if you follow the label, if you are a little bit careful when you are applying, like especially if you are considering the weather, like it is not like 100 degree when you are spraying um, some of your growth regulators, I think that will help each other rather than like uh, just... Uh, uh, talking about like which bean is cupping or which bean is not or something like that. I, th I think one of the things that um, we could do at the university and, and there's been several comments about pictures and photos and now I know they can be misleading, but Jared, um, there are typical educational things in terms of what um, the different growth regulators and group 15s and so forth uh, but uh, crappy news with uh, some of the better photographs, I think at least it would, help and that's not necessarily going to solve every individual field uh, situation but I think that's in response to some of the questions we didn't have time for photos here but we get a little bit, a little bit longer in Devlin on, on mode of action and some of the things that you alluded to I think that would um, uh, spring you know at least some of that and oftentimes we see a, a mixture of uh, uh, different things in that I think a lot of those and examples of some other uh, situations that maybe some discussion about tank contamination, but as alluded to, uh, a lot of what we're seeing is edge to edge. And um, I, I think we could talk a little bit more about that. And the fact that we at Wasika had the second warmest June on record since 1933. Uh, so we were now extremely hot. And uh, you know, we now we have a little bit later that dicamba window. And you know, at, if that changes through the MDA, that might have an impact uh, as well going forward. The drift reduction, DRA, um, you know, in all situations, we always hope that people follow the label. Uh, but, you know, if, if not, that could, that could be part of the, uh, 
uh, uh, part of the issue too. And we had experience in Arkansas, uh, Missouri uh, with atmospheric loading, high humidity, maybe not as, you know, in dry. So it's a little bit different than us, but certainly we have inversions. And I think lastly, uh, we, you look back, you know, uh, the technology on list is still relatively new. Um, and in how many different uh, site years or different atmospheres were things looked at and tested, uh, that may come into play too here as, as well, especially phenotypically like Seth is talking about. So um, that, that's, there are some obviously unknowns with that particular trait. So um, uh, going forward with that, but I think there's some things that we can do in follow-up um, situations based on the questions that have been very helpful that we are here, we're recording those, uh, we can use those to help us uh, basis on uh, subsequent articles uh, going forward. Would you agree, Jared? Yeah, for sure. Uh, there's a lot of questions here we did, we're not able to get to today. So uh, uh, expect a response. We're going to try to respond to those um, individually um, to help you out there. You know, we, we did kind of blow right past our, our half hour time slot here. So I think we do need to wrap up for the day. Uh, before we do that, um, I think we'll make some, some quick kind of concluding remarks. And then before everybody leaves, if you want to see pictures, I was able to pull up the Purdue publication that, that is available online, but does have some nice photos uh, demonstrating some of the different symptomology that we're talking about here. We do okay. apologize for not sharing those photos earlier, uh, but if you'd like to see some of those photos, we'll share them here in just a minute. Yeah, I was just going to talk about two resources. Number one, that Purdue publication, which is differentiating 240 and dicamba injury on soybean. You can Google that, you will find it, or Jared, you can post the link maybe. And second publication, when I was a graduate student, I made it in Nebraska, which is tips for identifying post-emergence herbicide injury on soybean. I think those two resources you can use to find out what kind of injury on soybean and which herbicide it is causing. So that might be helpful for some of you folks. Yeah. So really what we hope you learned today was, you know, take a step back. Obviously, sometimes it's easier to just point your finger at your neighbor or point your finger at a product. It's not always the answer. You know, make sure you take a step back, you know, have an open eye, approach these fields objectively and eliminate, you know, it's really a process of elimination um, and go from there. If you do have um, pesticide off target complaints, the Minnesota Department of Agriculture has that, that uh, line uh, submission resource. If you do have issues, I would encourage you to, to submit those. That's really what the point of that is, uh, to try to document any of these misuse issues. Um, and I do encourage you to, to utilize those Minnesota Department of Agriculture resources if that's the case that you're in. Uh, with that, I'd really like to thank our guests, Tom Peters, Seth Nave, Bruce Potter, and Devlin Serangi. If you have any questions for those individuals, we will post their, uh, their emails in the chat here if you'd like to follow up with them individually for, for any follow-up questions. Again, we'll try to respond to those questions. And uh, if you'd like to, to join back, uh, we're taking the week off for this program this next Wednesday, but we will be back um, that last Wednesday in July the 28th uh, for some follow-up conversations for the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. So with that, I, I thank you all for attending today and, and uh, encourage you to attend in future sessions.